Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Today, I am introducing a topic that is dear to my heart. We have three guests on today, one at a time. First, we'll hear from a guest who feels connected to Hashem most when she is practicing and doing yoga. Our second guest will be a kosher yoga teacher, and we'll close up with a rabbi who specifically disapproves of yoga and Judaism being a possibility in this sense. I'd love to hear from you. I bring different voices and experiences to you, so I'm curious what your thoughts are. Join us in the discussion group. As you listen, feel free to comment or start a conversation. Listen until the end because I will be telling you what's coming out in the next two weeks. This is a Jewish Coffeehouse podcast, so if you enjoy the show, you might enjoy the other podcasts on jewishcoffeehouse.com. I want to thank our anonymous sponsor for today. She wrote me a beautiful message about a month ago, and I saved that letter just so I can read it whenever I need a pick-me-up. So thank you for all your kind and generous messages and gifts, and specifically to our anonymous sponsor for today. It really helps me stay focused on moving forward and thinking bigger. Without any further ado, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Francisca Show. Tell us just a little bit about yourself, your professional background, your religious upbringing. Give us a little idea of who you are. Okay, so I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My parents are Bali Chuba. So my house was, I mean, I grew up religious. I went to a Jewish day school, grew up from kosher everything, and went to a Basiaco high school. And for better or for worse, it was what it was, but I got the full Basiakov Chinuch. Uh, and then I did not go to seminary. Instead, after high school, I went to beauty school and I got my license, my cosmetology license. And then I worked for a couple of years in a salon. And then after working for two years, I decided, you know what, I kind of want to go to Israel get an Israel experience. Why didn't you go to seminary the first time? Was it a financial thing? There was, no. My parents were actually very surprised. And they were like, if it's a financial thing, like it's none of your business, like that's for us to take care of. And they were very supportive, you know, of me going. And I said, there's no place that I go to. I'm going to mess up my year. I'm not ready to go. I don't want to go. My principal was like, well, that could be a problem. You know, why don't you want to go? Let's find a place for you. My Rebbitzin was like, you know, you're missing out a chance of a lifetime. My father was like, well, you know, you know, we want to support you. But like, what about Shadusim? You know, how is that going to affect you that wise? And I was just like, you know what? No, you guys can all tell me these things, but Hashem has a plan. And if a guy doesn't want to go out with me because I didn't go to a seminary, I don't want to date him either. What do you guys know about seminaries? They don't know anything. They know a name. Their they mom know you conform to something. They know I conform to something, but that's not me. And it never was me. So, right. So after working for a couple of years, I went to Neve and they had a Mathena program. Where were you living before you went to Neve? I was in Milwaukee. I was still in Milwaukee living at my parents' house. And so Neve has this Mathena program, which is basically like a back to basics program which is, you know, what they really gear towards is people who, girls who are just learning about becoming Jewish, 
that type of thing. And when I went there and he goes, you know, you grew up from, you went to basic. Why do you even want this? And I said, I never got the basics. I got everything after basics and I want 101. And I feel like I'm missing out on that. Tell me a little yeah. more about that. Your parents are Bali Chuva. What do you mean you you got everything but the basics? I never got, how do you know Hashem exists? Okay. Where does Hashem come from? It was always like, that was more of like, no, we know that. It was a given, which I understand. But if I want to question it, and then I was looked at as you can't question that. That's not a question that we ask. And I was like, why are you turning me away? I'm, I'm asking a basic Jewish question, and I shouldn't be turned away for that. So it was a six to eight week program. It was amazing. I loved Israel. I fell in love with it, and it was great. I came home and was still working in the salon. And then I met my now husband through Saw You at Sinai. And he also wasn't someone who conformed, he wasn't somebody who just did things just because. And I knew right away we were going to. We're going to get married. I just, I knew it just from talking on the phone. You talked to him on the phone before you met him? Okay. Mm-hmm. For a while. And it was the best thing for me. It was, it was the best. I got to know him before I met him and had whatever, you know, when you first meet somebody in person, you have, you have an automatic bias. Judgment. Bias. Exactly. And I didn't have that. I just had a conversation and knew that I liked him from that conversation, knew that he could carry on a conversation And, you know, it was, it was amazing. And then we met and we dated for a little bit. We're engaged, got married. I moved to Baltimore. And so now we live in Baltimore. I worked in a, in somebody's house. She had a salon and I worked there and then COVID happened. And so she closed down. And so I opened up my own salon in my house and that's what I do. I, in my house, I do hair, I do wigs, and I love it. And I now have two kids. Let's get into your story a little more. Okay. So you give a little bit away by your decision not to go to seminary and not feeling connected or there being a gap between the assumptions that our community imposes on individuals to you standing out as an individual. So illustrate to me those first negative feelings toward Yiddish guy or toward orthodoxy as it looks today. When I, it's probably when I was in school as a kid, my parents, I, I want to like say this and be like very firm about, about this. My parents are loving parents. They're great. And again, they're Balchuba. So like everything that they did was very, they always asked the Rav. That was their, like, mahala. That was what they did. And I respected that. But in school, it was a yeshivish type of crowd. And it wasn't about shuva necessarily type of crowd. So things were run a little bit differently. And things were just a given. And I didn't, I wasn't good at school. I was not an academic kid. School was hard for me. I didn't have many friends and I just, I didn't appreciate it. I didn't like it. And the first thing to go is Judaism of like, everybody here is Jewish and like, they're annoying. And Shabbos, you know, I have to get dressed in Shabbos clothes and like, I don't have the best clothes and the most it. 
clothes and I didn't really care about that. But then I'd go to show and be like, I'm wearing a stupid dress that I don't like. And all my all the other girls are looking at me and it was like, why am I doing this? I don't know. I just didn't I didn't connect. I didn't care so much. I had a rough patch as a teenager where I just it was hard. My parents really instilled in me a belief in Hashem that Hashem does exist. And my mom especially was always just like, well, Hashem loves you no matter what. Hashem will always love you. And really, this is the way that we do things. We do things because this is the right way. You know, we gave away everything. We did that life. We know it's not truth. We did that and we gave everything up. And now we're Jewish and we're from. And I was, you know, kind of rebellious, kind of like, okay, but it might be more fun to not be religious and go out with non-Jewish guys and do all this stuff that my parents were kind of like, that's not, that's not what we do. Like, there's no need for that. We did that. I'm telling you, there's no need for that. So how old were you when you started rebelling? And did your parents know about it right away? I was probably 17 or 18 coming out of high school. So I was kind of an adult. I don't want to say I was an adult because not really. But did my parents know about it? They found out because parents find out about things. They weren't happy. They weren't happy. And the thing is, like, as much as I believed in Judaism and I believe in Hashem, it was annoying. It was just annoying. And I wanted to do my own thing and live my own life and just, like, I wanted to be left alone. I want to talk about your experience and your exposure to yoga and how that dynamic shifted your love or even relationship with Judaism. So when does that come in? That comes in, actually, I really only started working out after I got married. And it was hard being married. It's hard being married. And I had a hard first year and learning to be in a relationship. And it was hard for him learning to be in a relationship and living together and living together with the opposite species. (laughs) It was it was really it was hard. And I started with a new therapist because I moved. I uprooted my whole life, left my job, left my whole family, moved to a new place. I I started with a therapist and she was great. And I was mentioning how, you know, I've, I've had body issues in the past. And she said, she mentioned to me, there's a place that I went to. It's called Bar. She said, you should try that. It's really great. I said, I don't like cardio. I hate cardio. I hate feeling like I'm dying. I just, I don't, I don't know what I need. I need motivation. So she said, try this place. So I went and it wasn't cheap, but I went and it was great. I felt like I was using my muscles. I was everything like that. That was kind of how my fitness journey started. And then COVID shut that down. And then within the past year, they opened up a new place, this gym, and it has a yoga studio. It has like a Pilates type of thing. It has a bar studio. It has a spin. So I started there. And yoga is very slow. It's a very slow, it's meant to be slow. Really bar is my type of workout. I love that it's a little bit faster 
but it's still slow. I don't feel like I'm moving fast. I don't feel like I can't breathe. Do you want me to talk about why I like it as far as the religion goes? Do you want me to get into that yet? Or? L- looking for that aha moment or the many aha moments that brought you closer to your roots, but from a completely outside source. When I was working out, when I first started at the new place after COVID, after COVID shut down the old place and I started at this new place and it was a while, it was like a year or two in between, you know, one shutting down and the other opening up. And I went there and I was feeling really bad about my body. I was feeling bad about everything in the world. I was upset at the world. I hated COVID. I hated what it was doing to my kids. I hated what it was doing to my marriage. I hated what the world was looking like. And I remember being in in a bar workout and just I was just standing there like doing something with weights. Slow, very slow. And I started crying. And I just was like, I like looked inside and I'm like, why am I crying? Like, what am I crying about? And it was like, I'm feeling bad about all of these things. And I'm, I don't know. It just felt like I can talk to Hashem. Like, this is where I am talking to Hashem. This is where I'm able to connect. I'm able to shut out everything else that is going on. Yes, I'm moving my body. I'm listening to the to the teacher telling me what to do and all that stuff. But I felt like through working with my body and feeling different muscles and whatever, I was still able to like draw into myself and be able to think about all of these inner things. Think about, you know, whether it was thinking about my kids and what they're learning in school and the difficulties that they're having and whatever it was, it was just like, I'm. this is where I'm talking to Hashem. You know, whether I'm actually talking to him or I'm talking to him through my heart or through my tears or whatever it is, this is where I'm connecting to him. Okay, when you say bar, is that the name of the yoga studio or is it a bar class? Imagine yoga, but a little bit faster. Um, so you're still doing planking. You're still doing, you know, d- the different stretching moves and especially stretching where it was slow, where you would have to slow down and you're breathing in and you're working on your breath, you're working on your your flexibility and all this stuff. That was when I felt closer to Hashem. I felt like, I don't know why. I can't even explain it. It just felt like I'm focusing all on myself. Everything else is quiet. Almost like I've heard people talk about hispoditus. I don't really know what that is. I just know that people go into a quiet space go into the woods, go into wherever it is, nature, whatever it is, and they're just focusing on their relationship with Hashem. That is what I have heard it to be, what I understand it to be. And I felt like every time I do a bar workout, every time I go into a yoga class, every time I'm working out, that is my hispoditas. I'm shutting out the outside world. I'm focusing on myself, my relationships. I'm thinking about my relationship with Hashem. How can I, you know, I'm working, it's, it feels like I'm working on myself and by working on myself physically and being able to talk to Hashem while I'm doing that, I kind of come out of the workout with all the serotonin and the endorphins and the whatever it is, the hormones that kind of make you feel good after you work out. And I felt like, okay, 
I accomplished, I dove in today. Whether it was, I just said brachos, whether it was like, I literally just talked to Hashem, whether I just said, thank you to Hashem, thank you for like making today go easy or with the kids and I was able to get them out on time. Whatever it was, I felt like that hour or that half hour, whatever it was, I felt like I was able to connect. And did the teachers share any thoughts or was it more of a strictly working out class, guided class? So it's more of a guided class. The yoga teachers, you know, they always say, go within. They say these phrases of your go within the higher power. They would say different things like that. And I always just related it to Hashem, where it was just whenever they would say a higher power, they would say Zen, different words that they would use that I just kind of like, I don't know what that means. I'm just a regular person. Like you're talking to me as if I'm like vegan and all this stuff. And I don't know what that means. So I'm just going to relate that to my relationship with Hashem. Have you ever tried out any of the Jewish yoga experiences? No. On On purpose. Why? Sometimes I feel like the Jewish places or whatever it is, either they have an agenda, which is their agenda. That is what, which is fine. I'm, I, it's just not for me. What's the agenda that they have? Almost like a Kirov type of thing. I don't want somebody, I can do it. I want to do it myself. I don't want somebody trying to save me. You know, I don't, I don't need saving. I got this. I have a relationship with Hashem. And I can be close with Hashem and I want to be. And I don't want somebody pushing me because I can push myself and I want to be the one to push myself. That's just me again. And I feel like sometimes whenever I work out with other Jewish women, sometimes I feel like Jewish women are a little more judgmental. In what way? Um, (laughs) I don't know whether they're judging on what I'm wearing or how I'm reacting to things, or I don't know. There is there is a studio that is mainly the from girls go, my age, maybe a little older, but that's not my crowd. I don't relate to them. I relate to the people that either are Jewish and not religious, which is are a lot of the women actually that go to the gym that I go to. I know they're Jewish. They live in my neighborhood, but I don't see them. I never see them at Shul. I don't see them on a daily basis. I have nothing to do with them. My kids don't go to the same school. Nothing to do with them. I don't want to. I don't want anything to do with the women. I The gym for me is not a social place. It's a place for me to connect with myself, connect with a higher power, connect with whatever it is that I'm connecting with. That is my place of connection. It's not a social connection that I'm looking for at the gym. And how can you express what you were able to find in these practices or in this practice that doesn't exist for you within the Jewish space? Like, is it the mere fact that it's coming from a non-Jewish source, the entire thing, or something's actually lacking, whether it's that lack of judgment that comes with anything that's done but it is. I feel like it's a lack of judgment. And whenever I'm around, for example, going to a JCC, which they have everywhere, which is an amazing place. I'm not knocking it. Like, I want to put that out there. I think it's an amazing place for women to go and have women's classes and they can get those workouts. And it's great. 
I feel like whenever I'm around Jewish women, whether it's a shul event, whether it's just shul on Shabbos or a Jewish workout class, for some reason, I feel judged. And that is probably something that I need to work on for myself, that why am I feeling judged? Probably just because I'm insecure. I'm insecure in myself, even though I don't think I'm doing anything wrong. But I always just feel like I'm judged on what I'm wearing. I'm not wearing Lululemon. I feel like a lot of Jewish women look a certain way. They have like a good body shape. I don't have that. I'm just a regular, basic, how I view myself. I'm regular. I'm basic. Sometimes women will wear skirts and they'll wear long sleeve shirts to the gym. That's not me. I wear my leggings. I wear a regular workout top. My sneakers, things don't necessarily match. It's not a coordinated outfit. It's not a crop top and leggings and whatever it is. So I'm, I don't fit into that crowd of like really with it. And I don't fit into the crowd of they wear leggings with a skirt on top and a long sleeve shirt and their hair in a, like a cute ponytail. I don't fit into either of those groups. Do you judge those women if you see them in a class? Are you judging them and therefore expecting or assuming that everyone else is judging you? It's a really good question. I think subconsciously I am. And I'm. if a from woman were to come into the class that I go to wearing a skirt and wearing a long sleeve shirt and with a hair covering, I do a little bit judge. I do feel like you look out of place. What yoga concepts or exercise teachings that you use throughout your life? Something that one of the bar teachers will say, she'll say the hardest part about class is showing up. And then she'll say, you know, go into your intrinsic reality. Forget about all the external things because you're here now and focus on being here now. And whether it's really hard or really easy or whatever it is, focus on now. And that is something that I try to take with me all day because I do have a lot of anxiety and a lot of things about the future. And I'm, you know, the ADD aspect of like, I'm always looking to move on to the next activity without finishing the now. And that's something that I take as far as religion goes also whenever I'm in that bar class and she's like, you're here now. So just be here now. And then I'm like, okay, like now is my chance to connect with myself connect with whatever I want to connect with, whether that means my inner self, whether that means Hashem, whether that means whatever it is I'm connecting with, connect. Be connected for that 20, 30 minutes, an hour, however long it is, connect. And when you go out, when you're done with the class and you go out, then you can be out and focus on your external realities. That's something that I bring with me that that they will say. And with yoga, when you show up into class, they say, okay, they take, whether it's two minutes, which feels sometimes like an hour, when they're like, take two minutes and we're just going to breathe and we're just going to sit here and connect with your inner self and whatever it is. And they're doing this this breathing technique and whatever it is. And a lot of people roll their eyes at it because it's so slow. But I think that that is kind of the point of slow down, slow down, Focus on what you're doing, connect with whatever you need to connect with, and then you can move your body and you can 
continue to feel whatever you're feeling throughout your body and different muscles and and how it makes you feel in different positions. And sometimes when I was in a yoga class and they would say, connect with yourself, and I would start breathing and then I would just start crying. And I'd open my eyes going like looking all around and everybody is just sitting there. They're quiet. Their eyes are closed. They're connecting with themselves. And I'm sitting there crying going like, why am I crying connecting with myself? What is it that I don't want to connect with myself with? Like, what? why is that? And I feel like yoga or bar or whatever it is, is a really, I don't know, being in that non space, I feel like no one's judging me. Nobody's looking at me. Nobody cares. Nobody knows me. Nobody knows me. No one's going to see me later. No one's going to call me for a hair appointment. It's that safe space. Does it come to your mind or bother you that you're not able to find that connection through a Jewish activity? No, no. Okay. I think that everybody has to find it somehow. Some people find it through working out, through yoga. Some people find it through painting. Some people find it through painting Jewish art, Judaica. Some people find it through painting nature. And I, I personally believe whatever brings you that belief, whatever brings you that tranquility, that serenity, that that shalom within you, whatever brings it to you is okay. As long as it's in a healthy way and it's not from drinking, doing drugs, doing, you know, things that aren't healthy or good for you. As long as it's something, he- a healthy outlet, why not? Anything else you wanted to share before we wrap up? It's something that I try to put onto my kids, a love for Hashem, Whatever Hashem looks like to you is okay. Knowing that Hashem does love you and that there isn't one specific look of Hashem. Hashem is not looking for one specific look. He made me the way that he made me and he made you the way that he made you. He gave me certain challenges and you other challenges and that's okay. And I think that it's important for us to realize that as an individual, it's our goal to figure out how to connect with him and how we get that connection is is up to us and it's a it's a journey it's not it's not a one size fits all and that's okay being okay with that thank you so much Shifra i really enjoyed this conversation i appreciate you doing this thank you my pleasure i'd like to shout out to okay clarity sponsor of the show OK Clarity is the place for any Jew, no matter how from or religious you are, to find a top-notch therapist, psychiatrist, coach, or nutritionist. And it's completely free for you to use. OKClarity.com's professionals are vetted and have extensive experience working with the Jewish community. If you're in the market for therapist, coach, nutritionist, psychiatrist, or the like, you want to check them out. If you don't find what you're looking for, they have a concierge service where you complete a short form and they will personally match you. If you are a wellness professional, I highly recommend joining their directory. Their team is amazing and professionals receive referrals effortlessly. OK Clarity also has an amazing WhatsApp status with over 7,500 obsessed followers. And yes, I am one of them. Their WhatsApp is a free way to improve your mental health and they post great humor, so you'll laugh too. If you have a WhatsApp, shoot them a message at 917-426-1495. All the links are in the show notes for you. So make sure to go check them out. And here we go back to the show. 
We are continuing our yoga conversation with Jenna Zadaka. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. This is so exciting. It is exciting indeed. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, both religiously, your religious background, as well as your professional? So I grew up secular. I grew up in Minnesota, and I discovered the worlds of Torah and mysticism um, when I was in college. First, I was introduced to the worlds of yoga, and I became a yoga teacher, and I was really exploring Buddhism and Taoism and yogic philosophy, but something always felt missing, and it didn't really feel like it was hitting home completely. And once I discovered the mystic world of Judaism and the inner dimension of Torah and Kabbalah, it just nurtured my soul so much. And then it took many, many years to be able to integrate the two. Okay, so that's a quick summary where we're going. And I'll just tell you the lens of today's conversation is to really talk about bridging Torah and yoga together. So let's dive a little deeper and talk about what about yoga and Torah was attractive to you? What was missing in your life? So I entered the world of religious observance and I I dropped yoga because I didn't see it in the religious world. I didn't see any role models or women that were integrating it. And I heard, you know, yoga is a bodhisattva, idol worship. I heard things like that. And it just wasn't accessible. So I did drop that part of myself. But once I became pregnant with my first child, it wasn't even a choice anymore. It just forced me into my body. And my body was changing so quickly, and I wanted to be a part of it. I didn't want to miss the subtle experience of pregnancy. And for me, that meant being on my mat every day, whether it was just a few poses and breath work, or eventually having to go out of the community to go to yoga classes because it wasn't available in the religious community I was in. And from there, I I started reintegrating it because I saw how important it was especially for women's bodies in our changing through pregnancy and postpartum and and just through the months. And it's great for everyone, but I think especially for women as we as we go through many changes in our body to have a committed practice where we can honor and tune into what's going on inside. So you're not just pro-yoga and love yoga. You also have a yoga course. So talk to me about before we get into what you do and how that's so special, what are the concerns for from women who may be hearing about Jewish or kosher yoga? Sure. So one of the biggest ones is going to a yoga studio that um, has an, an idol there. Of course, that's not kosher. If there's a, a statue, a Buddha, in yoga classes, it can be problematic if there's chanting and if you even if you use certain names of the poses that are named after gods or goddesses from different traditions, so all those things are problematic. Some people, it depends who you talk to, some people would say kundalini yoga is the most problematic. Um, it's a type of yoga that draws energy from the ground. That's like a snake energy upwards. But there is different opinions about that. I've I've also explored kundalini yoga as 
in Judea, in Hasidic philosophy, there are two types of light. There's a downward flowing and an upward flowing, or Yashar and or Choser. And Kundalini draws on the or Choser, which is like the returning reflected light from the ground. So some people would say Kundalini is problematic. If you talk to some, some scholars, they'll say doing a whole sun salutation is a form of Avodazara. So I was taught when I was making sure that my yoga was kosher to always break up a sun salutation. So it's never the exact sequence. Um, so to add something between and always break it up. And then there's the modesty factor. If you go into a yoga studio and it's mixed or it's not modest, but I believe that all of these things can be addressed and with proper awareness and kavana, you can create an atmosphere that it actually enhances your Torah and your connection with God and your avoda, your inner work. So I believe it is possible to create a kosher atmosphere for yoga. And I think it's it's not just possible, but it's necessary because Jews all over the world are needing an embodied experience, whether it's in synagogues or just communities. And if we don't address the needs of the community, then people are going to have to look elsewhere. But we have such a rich tradition with embodiment practices and so much body Torah that it would be a shame to, to block it out. So when you say body Torah, what do you mean? Like there's a song that says, with all the bones of my body, I should pray, I should praise you, Hashem. So that's just one tiny example that our whole body needs to be involved in prayer. There's so much Kabbalah of the sacredness of our body. Like even right now, we're, we're in the month of ER, we're working through Sfirat HaOmer, and the Sfirot, the divine emanations, are sourced in our body, and it's a fertile ground for exploration on the yoga mat. On Sukkot, the four species resemble four parts of the body. You can bring so much harmony and integration with the Torah concepts and Torah learning and let it integrate and actually be felt in a somatic way on the mat. I feel like if we just keep Torah in the mind and we're only intellectualizing it and we're only studying it, but we're not letting it sink down into our deeper energy centers and we're not really making it ours and the deeper we can bring it which is through the heart and then even lower through the lower energy centers which in the tree of life is netzachod and yisod and into malchus that's the actualization of the tree of life it brings the torah through all of our centers and that's how we channel Hashem into the world. It's through our bodies. Talk to me about your experience. Is it an online course or is it in person or live yoga with you? How much of it is a is an exercise versus other learning? learning? So right now I have a Jewish yoga course through the 12 Hebrew months. That's all online. And for each month, we have a manual, just Torah of the Hebrew month, the 12 points of light and the dimensions of the month and how they can invite us in to breath work, meditation, yoga, based on the Kabbalah of the Hebrew calendar. So we learn about the month and then we embody it on the mat in meditation in breath work and in discussion. So it's really more like of a wholesome experience. And I also have a spirit course and that is happening right now. So we go each week, we learn about the sphira, and then we bring different practices, not just yoga, but all sorts of practices 
to integrate and harmonize and balance out the sphero in the body. So that's less of a yoga course and more of just an embodied embodiment course. And then I also have in-person classes, Rosh Chodesh yoga, and just weekly women's yoga. Okay, as a teacher, can you share some of the biggest experiences and shifts that women express to you? We don't need names, obviously, but we'd like a demonstration of what does this practice, how does it enhance to anyone who has no idea what this is about? Can you shed a light? Yeah, I think the biggest breakthroughs for women, especially those that have been learning Torah their whole life, and they've been religious their whole life, and now they're coming to meditation and yoga. And for the first time, they felt wisdom that their body has that they've never tapped into before, or they've been guided by the light of their heart. And they're able to listen to their feminine wisdom, which is shining from the inside out. And it's not necessarily imposed by the mind. And the more you can dedicate yourself to a committed yoga practice, you can strip away those layers of what's the, those external expectations of yourself and those external voices. And you can begin to hear that crystal clear, pure voice that's within. And there's a lot of healing that happens with that in your relationships and just discovering more about your your inner world because our body holds so much wisdom that we can tap into. I think it's important for listeners to to know like yoga doesn't mean you have to get onto your mat for an hour and do all these intense sequences and know every every pose. It could even mean finding like one or two poses that ground you or that inspire you or whatever the energy you need. And just breathing in them and experiencing them and feeling what the story that that pose brings you. Like for an example, before any interview or podcast or anytime I feel like I need a boost of confidence, I'll just do star pose and take like three shining breaths and let my confidence just radiate outward. So star pose for me is like total, um, I can do this, I can take up space. I can be here. And then there's other times like this morning when my head was like whirling and there's to-do lists and overwhelming, setting your forehead down on the mat in child's pose and just letting it's all that garbage from the mind and all that overwhelm just like sink out of the brain, out of the forehead into the mat and just like lay there until it empties. That is also yoga. Just one pose, a few simple breaths, tapping in. And I think what blocks people from Their yoga practice is that feeling like I can't do a whole hour or I'm not energized. But if you go on with, I'm going to just do one pose and from there, see where it takes me. Because sometimes that one pose turns into an hour of following your body and feeling good. And other times it's just that one pose and that's exactly what you need. Um, So whatever gets you to tap in for even a moment Um, And that helps us have a deeper relationship with our creator because then our relationship with our creator is fresh and alive because we are aware of our inner worlds. Have you ever been told that yoga has helped women or people in general control their anxiety, get rid of it, perhaps get off of medication for anxiety? 
For sure, for sure. I actually have an anxiety releasing bundle on my website, four videos for $18, (laughs) but you don't even need those videos. You can find a few practices that work for you. I I don't know where I would be without yoga in terms of anxiety. Any time I feel a buildup of anxiety, if I get onto my mat, the energy starts to flow and you, you get into the flow state and you're tapping in to this higher self that is moving and movement really releases stuckness and anxiety. Also, the movement helps us breathe deeper. And a lot of our, a lot of our emotions get stuck and trapped in the body. And we need movement to release it, to release stuckness and open to a more free and relaxed state. So for sure, it helps with, with anxiety and meditation. So yoga also allows us to meditate. My best meditation moments have happened after a yoga class when you, your energy is just swirling and then you can be open to so many energies and, and really receive a lot of, a lot of wisdom. It also enhances your energy. It helps with sleep. It just helps you feel good. It's good for your skin. It's good for your endurance, your core, your mu- your strength, flexibility. So all of these things help us be better servants of Hashem. Just to end, there's a really awesome Gemara in Brachas that says, just like Hashem, just like God fills the whole world, our soul fills our whole body. So if we can really experience all of our body and feel that our soul is enlivening us and sustaining us, it's really a mystical experience. So that's why I think yoga and Judaism can really integrate and support each other. Because when we are in touch with every part of our body, we can lift all of that up to praise Hashem and to be part of the higher frequency of the world. Okay, thank you so much. Jenna, this has been so helpful. Our next sponsor for today, I would like to give an electrifying shout out to the incredible team at Dynamic Motion Pictures, led by the talented Chris. If you're in need of music videos or commercials that will truly come alive, these are the folks to turn to. Over the past four years, Dynamic Motion Pictures has been the creative force behind all of my recent music videos. Their dedication and expertise in capturing the essence of my music have left me speechless every single time. From vivid colors to striking production design, they bring my visions to life in ways I couldn't have imagined. One thing that sets Dynamic Motion Pictures apart in their commitment to delivering the best experience for their clients. They go above and beyond to ensure every detail is perfect, making the whole process seamless and enjoyable. So if you're an artist or a business in need of video production services that will leave a lasting impact, look no further than Dynamic Motion Pictures. Trust me, they'll take great care of you, your project, and take them to new heights and make your vision a reality. Hire them, just do it. The links are in the show notes. And here we go, back to the show. We are continuing the conversation about yoga and Judaism. Right now with us, we have Rabbi Moshe Gnuth from Israel. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself, both religiously and professionally. I come from a Orthodox family for many generations. I grew up in uh, Israel, mostly, and then in the United States in uh, Cleveland and Baltimore. 
And when I came back uh, in my early 20s to Israel, I met uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Ginsberg. I've been with him since almost, working as an editor and a teacher in his schools. I've edited many of his books, both in Hebrew and in English, been very close, and uh, been privileged to uh, uh, learn most of his Torah, and uh, especially his understanding, which I think uh, most people might know already, is uh, predominantly in the mystical and the spiritual area of uh, areas of Yiddishkeit, Kabbalah and Hasidus, mostly. But he's a polymath, and his knowledge of Judaism is very wide and deep. And would you say you're Litvish, Hasidish? Hasidish, we're Chabad. Tell us what your views on Jews practicing yoga are. Let me start by with the uh, halakhic uh, side of things, which is not what I came to discuss, but uh, still needs to be said. Hopefully people are aware that uh, there are at least two major opinions on what to do with uh, with this practice. Ramosha Feinstein is reported to have uh, said that uh, it was not a vodazara. I don't know if that means that it is permissible, but he at least uh, said that it's not a vodazara. I don't know on the basis of what and exactly uh, what the situation was. I wasn't able to track down the uh, book that discusses it. On the other side of the spectrum, a few decades later, we have Rabbi Yoshiv, who was reported to have answered to a person who actually came to ask him whether it was permissible to engage in this practice, that it was a Vodazara, or at least close to a Vodazara, and therefore he should not do it. And if his heart won't let him relinquish his need, he should uh, concentrate more on Torah. Th- these are two halakhic perspective answers. I don't know how much halacha you can derive from them, but at least a, a certain direction. The way that uh, Rev Ginsburg has analyzed this is uh, from a little bit of a different approach. It's not uh, purely halachic. We're looking more at the spiritual side of it. I just mentioned that we're, we're Lubavitchers ourselves, and one, one of the things that has always caused a lot of, one might say, pain in a certain sense is that many Chabad houses advertise something called kosher yoga, as well as other establishments, other uh, shuls. And the very, con- the very uh, transposition of these two words together doesn't really fit. You can't make uh, kosher yoga in the same way that you can't make kosher Christmas. Uh, it, it doesn't work that way because yoga in its origin, that, that, that there's no doubt, is a part of the Hindi religion. And the Hindi religion we know is a polytheistic, very avodazara type of religion. Um, there could be different opinions about what it is today, but the origins, the first century CE and so on, were very polytheistic, very connected to um, worship of idols and attempts to reach certain spiritual states related to those idols. It's true that over the centuries, this practice has, has transitioned, being maybe translated more into posture, into movement, into, uh, into physical exercises, but the, the goal remained the same. Now, when you have something like that, and I, I, so I, I want to first of all say that there's nothing wrong with doing exercises. If a person goes and stretches and uh, does uh, gymnastics or does whatever else, uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, exercising the body, in fact, probably the opposite. But the moment that you put yourself under a certain system to do it, so whether you know it or not, you're under the guidance 
of that spiritual system. And you can take out all the elements that you think are reminiscent of a Vodazar or connected to it, but the truth is you have to be such a big expert in it to understand what is and what isn't that the average person, even the average teacher, who is not well-versed both in the history of this practice and in Yiddishkeit, in Halacha, can't really know what works and what doesn't. So that's, that's the first problem, that we have nothing against exercise per se, but not when you put it under a certain uh, title. Now, this goes a little bit uh, deeper than just that. Uh, there are many examples of Judaism taking concepts from the nations of the world and concepts that were even of Odazara. Maybe the one that's not so well known, but is the most well used and, and most frequent in our lives is the names of the months. The names of the months in the Hebrew calendar were the names of the months in Babylon, in Bavil. And the names of the months in the Babylonian calendar were mostly after the names of idols of Avodah Zarah. And Chazal say, the sages tell us, that when we came out of Babylon, from the first exile, the names came with us, but the names were changed. We don't have the original, well, you can read scholarly articles about what the original names were, but these were changed. And the way that Chazal changed them, the way that the sages of that generation changed them, was to reflect something entirely different. So there has to be a name change. You can't just go and use the same word. The word has, in the same way that when a convert converts to Yiddishkeit, uh, they have the name that they were given as a non-Jew, but then they choose a Jewish name. And from then on, they're supposed to be known by that name. Um, today, because the names that usually people have, or except for maybe Christopher, I don't know, but um, most of the names are not any have nothing to do with uh, any religion or anything, so... Yeah, people use them civilly. They, they continue to use them in some uh, form or another. But the conversion entails the choice of a new name because it's one of the things that has to change, the, the way that something is called. Why is that? Because we understand that the name is, in a certain sense, the essence. Not everybody agrees in the Talmud, but this is the sheet of Rav Shimon Bar Yochai and Rabbi Meir and a few others, that Shema Kagarim is, is, is the sentence in the Talmud that the name has force, it has value. And we judge things by their names. We understand them according to their names. So they reveal something about the essence. So if you retain the same word and you say kosher yoga, so basically you've taken a word that's out of a vodazara, and everybody can explain why in Sanskrit yoga means yoke or it means union, means something else. But the, the fact of the matter is that every name of a vodazara in the end has a meaning in the language from which it originates. So to say that it means something doesn't really tell us very much. But that word became a word that was associated with this whole system of Hinduism. So the name has to go through a conversion. So that's the first thing. You can't really ever go by kosher yoga. That doesn't work. Now you want to say, someone knows how, he's not going to call it yoga. He's going to call it something else. And health movements or whatever it is. So then the question is, do the postures retain their names? Because the names of the postures, anybody who's done yoga, and in a moment I'll, I'll give a little antidote about this for my own personal life, but anybody who's done yoga knows that most of the postures are mimicking or paying heed to either an animal or an object or sometimes even the star, stars and the moon and the sun. 
And that in itself is already not just distant, reminiscent of Avodah That already becomes an act that is attached to the particular meaning that the people who formed these postures or these exercises had in mind. So you can't retain those names either. You have to completely erase them. In principle, there's nothing wrong with doing a backstretch, but the moment that you call it that you're doing something like a cat and you're mimicking the cat, so why do that backstretch at all? There are many other ways, Western ways that we know, that people who study, study uh, uh, physiology can tell you, and you can do those just as well. There's no question in the end that the reason that this is attractive to people is because of the atmosphere that goes with it. In other words, if I would just have a class on exercises in my Chabad house, I wouldn't get as many people as if I have this word that says yoga, because there, this, is, this is an attraction. There's something about it that causes people to be attracted. Why? Because it is, let's say it's oriental, it's special, it's foreign, it's, it, it, it conjures up some, some feeling of peace, of serenity, that maybe I don't have in my life. But you have to understand that those feelings, the way that they originated in Hinduism, they are very much related to the particular practice of Hinduism. And so to empty the mind in a certain way, or to empty the mind through concentrating on the body, these practices are not Jewish in the sense that they could actually be contradictory to what we want to achieve through exercise. In fact, what we want to achieve through exercise is a higher consciousness of Hashem, of the divine. And these are meant to do something entirely different. So when a person does a dog posture and says, I'm thinking of Hashem, that doesn't work together because <laughs> you can't really call it or a, or, or a sailboat or whatever it is. So there's a, there's a contradiction there in the names also. And thirdly, this was the, the, the last point that I was making, there's an atmosphere. And the atmosphere is something that continues to go with the person even after they're finished. And the example that Rav Ginsburg gave us many times is that somebody who's done what he calls kosher yoga, or what he thinks is kosher yoga, and has become adept at it and good at it and feels a connection to it. And they walk down the street in Manhattan or somewhere else, and they see a yoga studio. They'll be attracted to it, not because it's kosher, <laughs> but because of the yoga. And in that studio, you already don't know what they have. So again, the problems here have first of all to do with the fact that not anybody can convert something, some wisdom from the nations. Even if there is wisdom there, the moment that it is connected to their practices, and, the, and, and that's well established, it's connected to their uh, idolatry, to their false system of beliefs, it requires something, someone who has true knowledge of both the system and of what Yiddishkeit permits and what it doesn't permit in order to create that conversion. In the same way that three people can't get together and convert someone. Now, this is very uh, interesting. We're just before Shavuot, but maybe the, the holiday of conversion. But the idea of conversion is that you have to have a baitin. You have to have people who are knowledgeable, who are dayanim, who have the knowledge and have the expertise, and be able to convert someone, even though at the base of it is just the person, the non-Jew coming and saying, I want to be become Jewish. That's really the basis of it all. And yet still it has to be done in front of the court because we're saying that the process itself requires knowledge. 
and not everyone can do it. So not everyone can do it, and not everyone can teach it properly. Then we have the problem with the names. That was the second problem. And the third problem is the what we call the makif, the atmosphere, the surrounding light around us, which continues to accompany the person who's become good at it and is interested in it and enjoying it and will take them to places where they don't want to go. And they will feel an affinity towards this, even in its avod, pure avodazara form, meaning they won't be able to tell the difference. Can you share your personal experience? In the 1990s, I was very attached to another rabbi by the name of Menachem Fruman. And he was a very, let's say, out there rabbi. His big deal was making peace between Arabs and Jews in, uh, in Eretz Israel, And he's famous for going to Gaza to meet uh, Ahmad Yassin. And uh, he was, a, what can I say, a personal friend to a certain degree. Hard to understand how, but a personal friend of, of Arafat. One of the things that I went with him to was a group of Jews who had come from India with a man by the name of David Hartzion. He was originally from Chile, and he, he had an experience when he was younger, and he was looking for this spiritual experience his whole life, and he claims that he found it in India, and he became enlightened. And he became a guru, being that he was Jewish and spoke Hebrew, Many of his followers, if not all of them in India, were actually Israelis who had gone after the army to uh, seek their, uh, for treks and whatever in uh, India. And at some point, he decided he wanted to come back to uh, Eretz Israel. And he came back with his group, and were about 40 of them. And they set up shop in the most uh, chic area of Tel Aviv at that time. And we went there because he was interested in learning Torah. And I went there with uh, Rafruman, and uh, we were there for about uh, or a month or a month and a half teaching them. And at some point, they all decided to do tshuva. And they all uh, uh, bought tzitzis, and they bought fill-in for the, for the men. And being a guru, and again, this is something that's very foreign to Yiddishkeit and not something that anyone would ever do, he decided to marry them in couples, sort of like the story in the Medrash, so he said, you'll marry you, and you marry her, and, and, and he made couples, and they were now, like, all 40 of them were wedded to one another, and he himself, they had, like, almost almost like real weddings, real Jewish weddings, and they uh, married, uh, he also married one of the girls there that was his, one would say, concubine to a certain extent, and for about two months, they 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 were trying, you could see that they were trying to lead something of an orthodox lifestyle. And they had Kabbalat Shabbat, and it was a big deal. They did it a little bit earlier than Shabbos so that they could play their instruments, and they played beautifully, and it was a very spiritual um, uh, experience. And yet, about two months after they started the whole exercise, they all fell back exactly into where they were before. And that was one of the experiences showed me that, oh, maybe I didn't mention Setting up shop meant they, the way they made money was they taught yoga. And they taught yoga at a very, very high level. And not ashamed to say that I didn't know the difference then. And uh, I participated for about two months and uh, and had actually a very strong spiritual experience that I've never had, let's say, davening. And in spite of the fact that they really tried, and you can see that they, they were very sincere. He was sincere in a certain, to a certain extent. They wanted to change. They wanted to become, uh, to be Baalei Chuba. They wanted to change their lifestyle. 
Very quickly, after two or three months, they all fell back completely into the Avodazar that they were into with the Buddha, with everything that they had. Even though they had taken it out, they brought it back in. And at that point, uh, our connection with them was severed. So I saw firsthand that what we call the makif, the surrounding light, is very, very powerful. By the way, they were teaching Hatha Yoga, uh, which is considered to be the most Western form, uh, the form that's least connected to Buddhism and to Hinduism. And yet it was so powerful there. You could feel it all the time, even when they were trying to do chuva. And in the end, they just fell straight back into it. That was my personal experience with it. So I, I very much am uh, aware of what we call this atmosphere uh, that other people who meet someone who's secular, who's never felt that, uh, get a glimpse of it, but maybe they can't even recognize it because it's not powerful enough. But the moment that you see the origin, you see how it's practiced really. And, and again, it's mostly the atmosphere. These exercises that have to do with Kundalini that they won't show you right away. And they're meant to uh, strengthen a certain power in the uh, in the spinal cord, uh, which is a, directly a, a form of worship of, of of nothing but the serpent, the serpent himself from what we call the Yetzirah. When you see these things and you encounter them, you understand that these practices are intrinsically linked together with the Avodazar. There's no way to really detach them. And again, it doesn't mean that we don't want exercises. We do. Uh, but we understand it's not so appealing. It's always not as appealing because there is some mystery, some uh, some oriental thing to it, and, and people are drawn to it. And when you see the original thing, you understand why why they're being drawn to it in the same way that the Jewish people were drawn to Avodah Zarah throughout the generations. It's always strange to think about this, but people are God-fearing and have only one, and, and have no, there's no question about their uh, intentions. And yet they fall, we fall into this trap again and again, and in the end, you have to really convert wisdom like that, uh, practices like that, by a knowledgeable expert who would come and say, this is what is permissible, this is what should be called now, and not the way that it's presented in, in, the, in this, uh, in this uh, what, what I would call uh, reform conversion called kosher yoga. Thank you so much, Rabbi Moshe Gunath, for doing this Pleasure. piece. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks for listening until the end. As promised, next week on that podcast, you'll be hearing from Bracha Jaffe. The same week as Orthodox Conundrum releases a panel about female from singers where I participated. Then the week after, we'll go a step further from today's episode where I have an episode for you all about psychedelics and what's available out there. Please consider being a show sponsor. Message me directly. If you enjoy the show, please spread the show to your friends and family. Make sure you're following the show so you don't miss a future episode. I love hearing from you. Join the WhatsApp discussion group and see you next week.